It does, and again, it's, it's conditioning, right? We are a product of our experiences, but we are mainly a product of the meaning we assign to our experiences, and that's what you can kind of go back and look at. Welcome to Enoughness. My name is Lisa Wang, national champion and Hall of Fame gymnast turned serial entrepreneur. This is a show that dives into the deeply personal stories of top business leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and athletes who share the defining inflection points that help them embrace their life's purpose and answer the question, how much is good enough? On today's podcast, we have Sasha Cohen, who is an icon in the sport of figure skating. As a fellow elite athlete in sister sports, we have so many similar, glorious, and painful experiences that at times it gave me chills to discuss how far we've come, but still how far there's left to go. If there's one thing we've both realized, though, it's that you'll never be happy if your source of happiness stems from external validation. I can't wait to share her journey in this episode. But before I launch into her interview... I want to give a huge shout out to all of the listeners of the Enoughness podcast. Your enthusiasm and love is what gives me the motivation to keep producing these episodes and finding incredible people to interview and share their wisdom. Before we get started, I am sharing today's review of the week from a fan, which was in response to last week's episode with Cindy Gallup. The episode was called How to Stop Caring What Other People Think. And this fan says, Hi, Cindy, I listened to your interview on Lisa Wang's Enoughness podcast yesterday, and I was blown away. Yesterday was the day I listened to your interview, and it was also the day that I needed to negotiate. I asked for exactly what I wanted, and guess what? They gave me more, more than what I asked for. And it was only after listening to your words did I have the courage to make that decision. Thank you so much for being in the fight for women. You are an amazing inspiration to women, and I cannot thank you enough for fighting for us. I'm in this with you. Thank you so much for that amazing review. And it is such an incredible feeling for me to hear that some of the listeners are taking the wisdom and advice from this podcast and turning it into actionable reality. Every week, I'll be shouting out one of my listeners. So just head on over to iTunes and leave your review there to be featured if you've been enjoying this podcast. I would love to hear from you and hear about how it's affected you. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce today's guest. Sasha Cohen is a two-time Olympian and Olympic silver medalist, three-time world's medalist, 2002 Grand Prix final champion, 2006 U.S. champion, and was recently inducted into the U.S. Figure Skating Hall of Fame. Sasha took a four-year break after the 2006 Olympics to pursue other opportunities in acting and modeling. And during this hiatus, she studied for a semester with the intensive Moscow Art Theater at Harvard University, guest starred and made appearances on Project Runway, Hell's Kitchen, Las Vegas, CSI New York, Blades of Glory, and Moondance Alexander. Following her competitive career, Sasha worked as an Inside Edition correspondent at the Academy Awards, an Olympic analyst for Good Morning America and Yahoo Sports, and was a speaker at Columbia University's TEDx conference. 
In 2016, Sasha graduated magna cum laude from Columbia University with a degree in political science. She currently lives in New York and works in investment management. Sasha, I'm so excited to be chatting with you today because as a fellow athlete in skating sister sport, gymnastics, I feel like there is so much that we have in common and we've talked over the last few months offline just about some of these struggles that we had growing up in an isolated, pressure-filled childhood environment, the extreme highs and lows of training, performing, winning, and failing over and over again. And that inevitable transition from being an elite athlete and being the spotlight into quote unquote normal life and the struggle to find out what your why is after you've spent your entire life dedicated to one dream, the Olympic dream. So Sasha, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. And I just want to start from the beginning and hear about your dreams as a little girl. What did Sasha dream of becoming? I was an absolute wild child uh, as a kid. I was Tom Sawyer. You know, I would always get in trouble. I'd be climbing roofs and treetops. Um, I famously told one of my best friends when I was five that Santa couldn't give her gifts because her chimney was fake. Needless to say, I wasn't invited over there again. Um, But I basically had so much energy that my parents had to put me in gymnastics for three or four hours a day so I wouldn't destroy the house. Um, that led to going to a birthday party that um, one of my fellow gymnastics teammates uh, threw at an ice rink because she also skated. And I absolutely fell in love with skating because of the speed, the sense of gliding and freedom. And for a short while, I skated and did gymnastics. And then finally, my mom was um, she's like, you have to choose. You know, I can't drive you to the rink and then drive you to the gym. We, we, we're going to have to choose one. And I think she pointed me a little bit more towards skating. And I think that her logic was if I fall there, I'm going to slide. Whereas in gymnastics, there were some pretty brutal injuries at the time with gymnasts falling off the beam. And um, I think even a few were paralyzed. And what was the point at which you really started to feel like, wow, I'm actually really good at skating? So I actually wasn't good. I loved it, but I was so uncoordinated and wild. Um, I was a speed demon. I would trip all my coaches. Literally eight coaches that I had, I knocked them all over. I was the only <laughs> the only student to do this. Um, I started late in skating um, at the age of seven. So when I got there, everyone else was uh, my age already had double jumps. And, you know, I was nine and trying to learn a single axle. So I wasn't the cool kid. And and I would fall and, and run into everyone. So I was kind of a little bit of my own disaster zone. But I loved it so much. And I think at that age, it didn't phase me. And I missed that sense of resilience because... I was I was this little girl that would wear this like the same jumpsuit to school every day that was neon. My mom went to this Swedish outlet and they were like these sweat or uh, these stretchy like neon spandex uh, jumpsuits, and I would just wear it, go play with the boys, like race them, do try to do more pull ups than they would, and I didn't care. And I think I had that same mentality at the rink, and I just wanted to get learn the next jump and the next trick. And I love the speed. Um, So I wasn't really phased out by not having friends and not fitting in. 
Um, and it wasn't until I think I was 13 years old and I made my first nationals that, that I felt special. And, you know, very few people made it out of regionals and um, all the way to nationals. And then I kind of realized what the Olympics were. Um, you know, of course, I'd watched the Olympics when I was much younger. But when I was 12 or 13, I realized, wow, if I really play my cards right and if I'm lucky, I could go to the Olympics when I'm 17. And and that's when I felt like there was opportunity for me. And at the same time when you felt that opportunity, did you start feeling immense pressure? I started to feel pressure at the age of 11 or 12, but I think a lot of it was pressure I put on myself. Um, it wasn't external. And again, I started late, so I was behind. Um, at my first junior nationals, I was the only girl that didn't have a double axle. And I was very insecure about that. And it took me two years to get this jump. And it was kind of a make or break jump in figure skating. Uh, a lot of people quit because they don't get it. And then, you know, they don't get their triples and you can't compete at a, at a junior and senior level. And so I almost quit um, before I, I got my double axle, uh, which wasn't really until my novice year. And my mom said, you know what? Don't quit on a bad day. You know, just give it a few more months because I was going through this period where I was falling every day. Um, the sides of my hips and knees were all black and blue. My mom and I would go to a discount um, scuba store and buy wetsuits and cut them up to make pads <laughs> that would just get, you know, stuffed all into my leggings because I, I would fall so much and I would be soaking wet. I would literally have to like wring myself out between sessions and put my gloves on the top of the car to dry in the sun. Um, and, and I'm very lucky that my mom had that kind of perspective that, you know, she didn't pressure me um, that I had to become an Olympian. But at the same time, she's like, you've put in so much work. Everyone goes through tough times. You know, don't make this decision now. And um, that was probably one of the best things she ever said to mm. me. Tell me about the experience of falling. What kind of falling? I <laughs> fall all the time. <laughs> yeah, so you mentioned that period where you you know, were falling from your jumps. And I think for a lot of people, um, we experience you know, certain small failures here and there, everyday rejections. Um, but that when you physically fall and there are moments where it feels like you know, you've lost those jumps, um, what's that emotional feeling like? So there's, there's obviously different ones. The times that I just referenced were learning a new jump. So it's natural. You expect to fall as you're learning something because you haven't gotten it yet. Um, but then once it's been nearly two years, then you, you begin to doubt yourself and you think, I can't do it. Everyone else has learned it in a year. Um, and so then you, you start to think something's wrong with you. Um, and then there's this, this negative energy you have um, when you're working on this jump. Um, but then there's times when... You have a jump down solid and then all of a sudden you fall on it in a big competition and you haven't missed it in months. And that just, that shakes you to your core because you just, you ask yourself, what's what's wrong with me? Why did I miss it here? Why did I miss it now? Did I think something wrong? What did I do different? And then your mind just goes into a tailspin and, and you know, as you know, in sports, that's not helpful. You need to still the mind and trust your body. Uh, so, so falling is tough, but the one thing I will say is that growing up as a tomboy and used to falling out of trees, skinning my knees, 
falling off my bike and bleeding all the time that the falls in skating didn't phase me that much. The bruises, um, it was the emotional pain later and the insecurities from feeling like I wasn't going to reach my potential or I wasn't good enough or I wasn't meeting the expectations I put on myself. I feel like those were those were my battles. You know, even now in life, I'm like, oh, you know, if you slam me into the side of the board, I'm like, that's fine. Like, I'll just get up and do this again. But it's it's the emotional pain, I think, that's that's harder to, to work through. Mm. Yeah, I... I put the exact same sort of pressure on myself, and I think that's um, that was always the hardest for me as a gymnast, between the pressure of the judges and the coaches and my parents and and especially myself. And where do you think that those expectations come from within you? Was it did you grow up in a certain household or or where yeah, where do you think it comes from? That is such a good question, and sometimes I wish I didn't have this inner compulsion that doesn't stop that doesn't rest um I feel like the only time I get a break is when I'm very sick when I have the flu <laughs> that's when I'm at peace you physically can't do yeah anything. because I'm so sick that I am happy to just sit and read a book and enjoy calling my friend on the phone and um you know no one else in my family is like this they're much more balanced and I was just you know from a young age I just was set on accomplishing and and I wanted to do everything and I think that's still a little bit of my challenge is knowing how to direct my energy and I think it was such a blessing when I found uh, figure skating because it it became clear I wanted to become a figure skater I wanted to go to the Olympics I wanted to be the best figure skater I could be and that led me down a 20-year path of complete and utter clarity I had an incredible sense of purpose and focus. And even though it was incredibly difficult and there were tears and, um, you know, just a lot of tough times and a lot of sacrifices, I was, I was happy in the sense that I had utter purpose and clarity. And it was, I knew I was doing the right thing. I knew I was doing what I was supposed to be doing on this earth. Um, and I think the tough thing is for athletes, our careers end before most people even begin. And especially for gymnasts and figure skaters, because it's even younger mm-hmm. than a tennis player or a basketball player. And so, so that, that is very hard to, to repurpose yourself later. But as far as where this, this drive comes from, um, I, I don't know. Have you thought about where yours comes from? I always think back to what are the fears that drive me? Mm-hmm. And there was something that you touched upon of this fear of not reaching your potential. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, given the short shelf life of figure skating, gymnastics, the fear of running out of time. Um, I think there's certainly a part of it that stems from immigrant guilt, knowing how much my parents have sacrificed for me to get to where I was in gymnastics to make sure that I didn't have to deal with those challenges. Um, and I think... All of those things contributed to me feeling like I had this responsibility to carry forward. Um, But then there is that sort of like unclear part of where within myself does it come from. And I think it's, in some ways, I think it's a natural drive and there isn't really a a true source. An explanation. You kind of have it or you don't. And it's, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. If you can harness it and direct it towards something... It's incredible. And, you know, 
as great and as difficult as our careers were in sport, we we found a connection and we could channel it. Mm-hmm. And I think now the big channel is when um, the big challenge is is to rechallenge. Um, sorry, to re funnel that energy and and so you've you've done this your whole life in figure skating or in gymnastics and now when that career ends and you still are this very compelled driven person the real world doesn't work quite the same way and you're starting behind your peers you haven't been you know the student president and um, written for your school paper and developed all these other interests and are ready to go when college comes you're kind of like whoa who else am I and and for me, that was 10 years later. I went to college 10 years after my peers, and I'd never interned. I'd never written for a school newspaper. I'd never asked myself who else I was besides a skater. And and I think I'm still in the process of asking mm. myself, who am I? Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about the, the actual environment, um, kind of that pressure-filled environment of the day-to-day training, um, what what it was like in competition, because I think it's so familiar to us, but for a lot of people, they just can't even imagine what it's like. So it would be very different if it was, you know, a few weeks after a major event, and you're just getting back into it and brainstorming new footwork sequences and music versus it's one week out to the Olympics and you're, you know, this is like one of the last three long programs you're going to do at home and how do you feel and are you going to hit everything and you just... You go into the day with a thousand pounds on your shoulder, you know, driving to the rink. It just, your breathing is constricted. You kind of, you have your routine and you just, you you try to stay out of your mind and you try to follow the routine. Okay, I need to jog. I need to stretch. I do these exercises. I lace up my skates. These are the same stroking exercises that I always do to warm up. And and you teach your body this, this pattern to follow, your condition. Um, but there's still that that mental weight of when you know you're 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 practicing and you're running through your full long program on your full short program, and when it's the countdown and you have three days left, two days left, one day left, and you're like, this is my last program at home, and then you know it's like kind of you're launching yourself off into a rocket, and you're like, I wonder what it's going to be like when I come back home and step back into this rink. Will I have accomplished my dreams? Like, this will be the defining moment. Like, this is the last time I will ever stand in this space on this practice ice, not knowing how I'm going to do at this national championship, world championship, Olympics. So there's this gravity that's, you know, this additional weight. So it's, you live with a lot. You grow up very fast. Um, you learn how to speak to the press. You have a maturity at the age of 14, 15, 16 that most people don't get until their 30s. Um, so it's... It's a different paradigm. Mm-hmm. So how many hours were you training by the time you were going towards the Olympics? So I went to the Olympics at 17 and 21. And as I got older, I trained less because injuries were mm. more of a concern. Um, so I was probably on the ice about three hours a day um, just preceding a competition, right? But at the beginning of the season, it could be five hours because you're doing choreography and you're just, you're doing a lot more, but at a slower pace. Um, But then I would also run sprints on the track. I would go to Pilates, go to yoga, ballet, physical therapy, meet with a nutritionist, sports psychologist, costume maker, you know, cut music. Then when I got home at the end of the day, I would watch the videos of my programs and be like, ah, 
my arms shouldn't be there. And like, okay, that's why this jump is feeling hard today. Like my center is not over my landing leg. And so it really was a full day, um, even though like the physical part on the ice wasn't that long. Would you consider yourself a perfectionist? I, I am a perfectionist <laughs> and I'm trying yeah. to unlearn that. You know, I'm a person for better or worse my entire life. I see what's wrong. Um, and I don't necessarily take for granted what's right, but it's it can be moved on, right? You know, I did this program, but I missed this jump. Why did I miss this jump? I need to focus on this. That's not acceptable. You know, I'm not like, oh, I did like a really good job, and that's a good place to start. Gold star for everybody. <laughs> yes, and so it, that's hard in life when you only see what you're doing wrong because yeah. especially when you're, you're learning something new um, and a new skill set and going to college after being homeschooled for 10 years and then not being in school at all for another eight years, you're going to have mistakes. You're not going to be perfect. You're not going to be as good as everyone else that's been doing this their entire life. So you have to you have to learn to be your own best friend and treat yourself like you would treat a friend. I had this, this discussion with someone recently exactly about that mindset because I realized that having spent so much of my life aiming for that perfect 10 and realizing that the way the scoring system works is that it starts out as that and then it's just everything's a a deduction and so I realized I was like wow I'm living my entire life seeking out where I'm getting deducted and I didn't realize that until I thought back to um thought back to the sport and I was like this is so unhealthy for me absolutely and I think it, it seems like the obvious path right if you examine your performance and if you hone in on like oh I could do that better you know but I think there's almost this kind of like rugged freedom where we really excel when there's joy and creativity at the beginning it's like when I first started skating and it was just this love of this feels amazing oh my god I'm flying and you're not judging when you're out of control and you fall and slide and you're like oh but I'm gonna do it again And I think that is very important to keep in whatever you do because it gets hard. There's burnout. And if you're always nitpicking yourself, then you're not, you're going to stop loving your sport. You're going to stop loving what you're doing. And that's going to ultimately detract from your performance. Um, So it's, it is a balance. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's not easy, but I think it's, you, you do the work by taking conscious steps, which is first being aware of your thoughts and then. As Tony Robbins says, like, don't tell me the problem, tell me the solution. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a way as a perfectionist to to notice but say, like, okay, like, I can just, I can do this better like this instead of saying, oh, I can't believe I did that again, you know, I always miss this. And so I think there's these subtle ways of framing that can make a big difference. I heard this recently where someone was saying that the way you judge yourself is the same way that you judge others. Do you think that's true for you or have you noticed any sort of subconscious um, things that happen where it's like because you're so harsh on yourself that sometimes you might be harsh on others? So that's interesting because I was a a single skater, so I didn't have to depend or rely or partner with anyone like in a team, in a pair team or dance team. So I definitely developed a very individual um, outlook and... I, I don't think I put the, the same pressure on other people because they weren't my responsibility. Mm-hmm. I lived a very isolated life. Um, other people weren't my problem. 
I could, I had control over myself and there was an Olympic medal I was trying to win and that was up to me. So it was, the world that I lived in was just such a, you know, microscopic bubble. Um, so, so I didn't in, in that sense, but I find now in life that I have a hard time when I'm around non-athletes, um, that don't have discipline Mm -hmm. because I don't understand it. Um, when someone's like, oh, but I just don't feel like going on a run or I'm just like, oh, what's the big deal? You know, like I can start my diet like next time. And like, what do you mean this is bad for you? And when they're just like, oh, it's just hard. I don't have time. Nobody does this. And it's just like, I don't want to hear the 1,000 excuses. Tell me why you can. Yeah. And I feel like I don't have patience with normal people. And so that's something I'm trying to to work on myself um, mm-hmm. to have. Um, because you have such high standards for yourself. And to see other people not matching up to that, it's like... Yeah, and I think it's because yeah. I grew up around athletes too, yeah. right? So if you grow up around people that are training and hyper-disciplined, and then you go to the Olympics and you meet the best across all sports and they're also incredibly disciplined and then you, you you know you kind of move to New York and you meet a whole range of people and you just don't understand if someone's like oh I want to do this but then they don't do it then you kind of just blows your mind <laughs> yeah yeah um and how have you kind of started to give yourself that self-love so I it's been a journey um and I've done a lot of work and it's been incredibly rewarding and I think it's it has started with figures like um like 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 Pema Chodron and she's a a Buddhist philosopher and you know she she writes about accepting where you are and I think um from the Buddhist perspective that's where it starts so you need to like accept your fear your insecurities your own judgments of yourself and to sit with it and then that discomfort it evolves, it transitions. And I think once you start to accept your insecurities and accept that you're not perfect, then it's not such a scary thing anymore. And then you can, from a healthy place, start to better yourself in a, in a healthy way, not in a way where you're attacking yourself. And then, you know, I was very, um, I, I read a, a book by Tony Robbins, which left a big impression on me that was understanding our values and understanding the values of what we want in life and the, the set of values that we try to avoid at all costs and understanding if you're, what you want and what you're trying to avoid are in conflict with each other. Like if you want success, but the number one value you want to avoid is failure, like you're going to chop off your feet because mm-hmm. in order to succeed, you have to be comfortable with failure mm-hmm. and humiliation. Um, and then going a step deeper is understanding the values that you have are all related to the experiences you've had in your life and the meaning that you've ascribed to it. Mm -hmm. And so if I say I was really affected by my Olympic program because I fell twice and, you know, I ended up not winning the Olympics and I can assign a number of different meanings to that, like how it makes me feel. And whatever meaning I I give to that, that will shape my reference point for life and how I see things in the future. And so I think if you really go back through these like maybe five big moments in your life that you feel like have shaped you, you need to look at the meaning you're giving to it. Um, You know, what was the meaning of me going to school or feeling like I didn't want to keep touring like 
a lot of my peers did? Like, what did that mean? And, and I think when you have that knowledge about yourself, then you can begin to reshape yourself in a, in a very healthy way because you understand where these tendencies are coming from, why you have your values, and what values are no longer serving you. And I think that's a big thing for athletes mm-hmm. because the values that we have to win, to be successful, to be the best are not really the best values to have later in life. I mm-hmm. think they're they're really going to prevent you from happiness if happiness is a value which I think eventually (laughs) you know the the athlete the perfectionist eventually it's important happiness is is a part of that yeah yeah that's really great and do you feel like you have started to learn how to be fully present because it's it's so easy to ask what's next what's next and especially with a high achieving mindset um how do you feel now about the way that you're able to enjoy the present moment I'm getting much better at it. It's a it's a constant work in progress. I have made changes and really prioritized certain things in my life. Like the first thing I do in the morning, I meditate. And then I journal. And I do this before I look at email or text or anything. And that really puts me in a clear space because New York just throws so much at you. It's a very high stimulus um zone and I think you need to create space for sanity um and and then the other things that I've done you know like I I go to yoga and and I've become very aware of my thoughts you know through different books that I've read it's kind of taught me to to notice to be aware and to let them go Mm -hmm. and I think when you can do that you know I still have the goals and I'm a person like I love a schedule and if something pops into my head I, I just I need to write it down otherwise it's it's in there bothering me and I need lists and I have this sense of this sense of peace when I'm like this is what I'm doing this week this is what I'm going to get done this is what I'm going to read this is what I want to write and that structure and maybe because I had that as an athlete that structure gives me a sense of calm and then I can kind of remind myself as I'm doing these things to be really present because there's always going to be a million things pulling on my attention. And one of the things that I've done is to unsubscribe from all notifications Mm -hmm. so that I'm not getting Instagram notifications if someone's like my picture or um, Facebook or whatever it is. And I think it's just the big battle of today's time is to fight for your attention, to take it back because it's really been hijacked in Mm -hmm. so many different ways. And I don't have a TV um, when I come home, I listen to music and, and I want to choose what I'm doing and when I'm doing it. So it's like, I want to listen to a podcast. I want to read this book. I want like empty space because I found, you know, over, you know, like the last few years I was getting to a place where I wasn't getting anything done because I was just dealing with an onslaught of emails and notifications and, and dealing with constant reaction. everything else, which yeah. wasn't anything meaningful. It was just trying to keep your head above water. And mm-hmm. so... I've learned to say no a lot more, which is very hard because I'm a people pleaser, huge people pleaser. (laughs) I want everyone to like me and I'm so afraid of saying no or disappointing people. Um, And so these are, you know, older and wiser. I wish I had this this wisdom 10 years ago, but I I suppose that's not how it works. So you said you are very structured as a person and I know that I also – thrived in that structured environment as an athlete but when I retired I was thrown into this world of 
now I have nine extra hours in my day. I don't have to watch my diet. It doesn't matter if, what time I sleep and what time I wake up. And, you know, going to university and just, I can just sit here and listen. Um, and suddenly you're thrown into so much unstructured environments. What was that process like for you? And did you, did you have that <laughs> transition point? So I think my transition was a little bit different because from competing, I went to touring mm -hmm. and there's a lot of empty unstructured time because you're, you're not training long days anymore. You show up at the arena at four, you have a 30 minute practice, you do your hair and makeup, you eat and, um, you know, you do your, your two programs, you get on a bus, you go to the next city and you might have two days off. So I had tons of unstructured time. Um, and, and at, at that time I really didn't know what to do with it. And I, couldn't sit still, so I would just walk the city for 10 hours, you know, until I was exhausted and would go to bed. Um, and so when I moved to New York to go to Columbia, it was almost the opposite. You know, I started with just two classes, um, which is not much at all, but it was two classes, you know, almost back to back, and that was about three hours of sitting. And then I got all my homework assigned, and, you know, it was another... 10, 15 hours of reading, and I was like, how would they expect me to sit again? I just sat for three hours. And so for yeah. me, the paradigm was learning to sit. Yeah. That was one of the most difficult things for me. Um, but yeah, you, I think that's why I've like thrived structuring my time again and now having a full-time job and wanting to make time for, for personal reading, for personal development, and for like for creative writing you have to be structured to fit it in because if you kind of are loosey-goosey, like things, you know, things fall by the wayside. So I've learned to like kind of prioritize instead of being like, oh, this is really important. I'd like to do it. Um, it's like, no, if you don't do this first thing and have this on your schedule, it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. When you retired from the sport and for, for, you know, so many years, you had that Olympic dream guiding you. And now in this that transition point that you're talking about going to school, what became your new dream? And is that still what you're going after now? I think I was very naive. I mean, I'm still naive, um, a little less so hopefully. When I left California where I trained uh, when I toured and also when I competed for the most part, I had wanted to move to New York, but it was scary. And I knew this is the city I wanted to go to college in because I was so much older. You know, I wasn't um, I wasn't 18 going to school. I, I believe I started when I was 26 or 27. And, and, and when I, when I decided to come and, and make that transition, I was very interested in finance. And so I was always reading Bloomberg and watching CNBC. And I, you know, in my naive bubble, I thought I was going to move to New York and I wanted to be in finance and I wanted to work in a hedge fund. And that was just like, and I think what I loved was this, this masculine energy and competitive intensity. And all my friends, for the most part, um, growing up were guys. You know, I have a couple close girlfriends, um, but just the very nature that you're competing against other girls. So mm -hmm. they're not generally your friends when you're competing against them because everyone's in their own bubble. And so you're friends with the guys because, mm -hmm. you know, you know, and, and I was always a tomboy and I didn't take time getting ready. Um, and I just, I love the energy of hanging around guys. Um, and I think so that kind of carried into 
the masculine energy of Wall Street along with the the very competitive, exciting way it seemed from the movies and what you saw on TV. Um, and then I think when I I got to New York, I realized that I, I didn't, you know, after spending some time here um, and kind of peeking behind the door, I realized that I actually had this really big creative side and that that wasn't the best environment for me, like a mm. purely um, competitive hedge fund type of environment. Um, and and actually what I'm doing now, it's kind of a mix, even though I'm, I'm still in the investment world, it's, it's a very creative look at technologies and trends that are kind of disrupting the way that we live and have lived. Um, so I've, I've, I've found the happy medium because, and I don't know if you feel this way about your sport, but our sport is, you know, figure skating and gymnastics, I, I find them very similar, is they have this elegance and artistry and creativity of, of dance, which is not a sport, it's an art, um, yet we have this very competitive foundation that's driven in you know in sport and I Mm -hmm. feel like both gymnastics and figure skating have this this cross-pollination of the two and so I'm trying to find a way to continue to incorporate those two sides in a non-sports world. If you had to define your why right now what do you think that would be? My why for life or my for for life? My why for life. I think in the last year, I've realized that my why has to come from within. I think I was so used to seeking external validation um, that I wanted to perform for someone. I wanted to be liked. I wanted to be validated. And I realized that's kind of a recipe for unhappiness. And and since then, I've, I've shifted my energy. And I think my why is waking up and doing something that makes you feel alive and excited, like the process, you know, and if you are excited about what you get to do and how it feeds your mind and your soul, like that's a win. So that is my why, is if possible every day to find something that I am doing, that I'm thinking, that I'm reading, people that I am having discussions with that make me feel alive and connected. Um, That's my why. Mm. Do you feel at any point that even in this quest, the moments when you feel like you're not good enough? I think I constantly feel like I'm not good enough. And I think it's because there's a, a bias in, in Western culture and there's also a bias in news coverage that we only see the most successful people in their fields. And so what we read about are, you know, the companies that get sold for billions of dollars and, you know, this CEO and that CEO and, you know, Richard Branson risking everything, but look how it (laughs) turned out for him. Um, And at the same time, from a Western culture perspective, we are taught that we are not good enough as we are. Mm -hmm. We are taught that you need to try out and make the team. You need to do better than everyone else on your SATs so you get into this college. You need to prove yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I think everyone has been exposed to that. And I think people internalize it in different ways. And, you know, ultimately, I think people can kind of find their voice and they might go down an artist path or like a non-conventional path or maybe not even go to school. And I think it's difficult because our society tells us we need to prove ourselves. Um, and so it's, that's just kind of a wisdom to wake up to, that that's not 
anyone's fault. That's um, it's like that's a habituation, and that's mm-hmm. something that once it's recognized, I think can be moved past. How are you defining the word success for yourself now, and how will you know when you are successful enough? This is actually something that's very new for me that I actually have in the past few months have had more and more consecutive moments where I feel like I have found success and I think it's because I've changed my why. Mm. And I think again it's understanding your your values and how you've rigged your life and if you make it so easy to be unhappy and unsuccessful versus successful and I've realized that to me success is is freedom it's internal peace it's feeling connected to incredible people and it is satisfying my curiosity and feeling fulfilled and so i'm continued to change my life to meet all those needs and so more and more i am feeling like wow i feel successful because i feel fulfilled and i think to me that's what success is have you always been able to give gratitude for things because I think a big part of that feeling fulfilled process for me was actually starting to experience blessings in my life rather than just asking what's next. Absolutely. And and I've often read everyone says, not everyone, but write down what you're grateful for at night, read it in the morning. And I would kind of do it and I would not really believe it. And then there are times, I don't know, I think times when you're open and you're receptive to it. And, you know, from, from whatever I read recently, and I think I think it was Seneca I was reading on the shortness of life, and you kind of just realize it all goes so quickly. Mm-hmm. And you can appreciate it or you can not appreciate it. And you can just really tap into the things that you're really joyful for. And I, I love my family Um, I love what I get to do every day. I love that I have the freedom to travel. Um, I love that I live in this cosmopolitan city, even though it's like a mess and stressful, but it's, Mm -hmm. it makes me feel alive and that anything is possible. And I think when you start to repeat it a couple times and then some, some doors of perception open and you feel it Mm -hmm. and you really feel it. And when you feel it, that's the most incredible thing because you know, as I said, it's like you'll never be happy with what you get if you're not already happy with what you have. Mm-hmm. And I think appreciation is is a very important um, mindset to cultivate. One of the things I started working with a spiritual teacher um, to try and cultivate more of this understanding of my why and how do I define my purpose and feel enough. And when we talked about gratitude, I similarly had this experience of, you know, I give I give gratitude. I write in my journal what I'm thankful for, but but it's not enough. You didn't and, feel it. It yeah. was kind of hollow. And the thing that shifted it for me was uh, she talked about experiencing the blessings of what the universe was giving you. And she said, have you ever thought about the fact that the universe has given you the gift of discipline? It's given you the gift of faith because... I had never thought of it that way of I've always thought like, why can't I stop working? I'm just, I'm always here on weekends and just working, 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 and I can't even enjoy my life. But when she reframed it as some people don't have this gift and it was starting to give gratitude for the things that I possessed and, and this idea of faith, because I've been 
like anybody else, burned a number of times, you know, had bad relationships. And for some reason, I always have faith that the next person that I meet is good at the core and I never bring that baggage in. And having that reframing was really when I started to feel gratitude because I was grateful for myself and who I was Mm -hmm. rather than nitpicking all my flaws and then trying to give gratitude for external things. And that's huge. Um, That's like a huge shift in mindset, right? When you can see what is good instead of what's wrong. And there is so much that is good, which is why you've achieved so much. Mm-hmm. And and it's a, it's important because I think sometimes it feels like self indulgent. Yeah, you're like, why am I <laughs> going to tell myself I'm good at this or I'm great at that? But it, it leads to an openness and a positivity that I think that just carries into other things you're doing. And it's just like this push of energy, and it's not always easy. And I have to remind myself, um, you know, I had to do this yesterday morning in my journal, um, and because I have so much I want to do. You know, mm-hmm. I set such huge to-do lists and, and expectations for myself and I was just seeing everything I had to do yesterday and I was feeling like very upset and I was like you did I'm like look at all you did at work like look what you you know how you applied yourself and you got this and this and this done and I like, journaled about it for a while and I was like okay like you know pat yourself on the back for that like you're doing a lot mm-hmm. you're doing a lot and it's one step at a time you know Rome wasn't built in a day and I think that's the other biggest thing that I've learned is like you see flashes of brilliance in in movies and documentaries and in articles you read and you see we see finished products all the time but there are decades that go into building a finished product mm-hmm. and i think we have to remember that we got to a pinnacle in our sport but we're starting over mm-hmm. and there're going to be decades that go into creating another finished product you know even though we'll, we're never finished but it's it's starting over. And I think that's the, the juxtaposition mentally that causes so much cognitive dissonance is that we worked so hard and we peaked and we were great at something. And now we're starting over and having to learn new skill sets from scratch. And mm-hmm. that's that's difficult when you yeah. have this idea of who you are and that you're good at something. And then you start over and you're like, what am I good at? Mm-hmm. And there's a sense of, in some ways, it's this push and pull between insecurity, entitlement, you know, feeling like, I have already been very significant here. I should be significant here. And then when there is that gap in time. It's ego. Yeah. <laughs> and it's learning to let go of ego. Ego is the worst because it it does. And again, it's, it's conditioning, right? We are a product of our experiences, but we are mainly a product of the meaning we assign to our experiences. Mm-hmm. And that's what you can kind of go back and look at. Um, and, and it's true. It, it's a challenge, but ultimately every challenge brings out a stronger individual on the other side of it. So it's like, welcome, welcome that challenge. You know, you didn't stay in your sport. You didn't stay safe. Mm-hmm. You challenge yourself. You are a tiny fish in a huge ocean. You know, you can't, you're, you're not falling back on the gymnastics community to be like, I'm important and look what I did. You're, you're starting over. And that takes so much bravery and you are so much more because you've, challenge yourself in that way I think that there's not enough credit given to that that move of moving outside of your safety net because I think at the end of the day that is what traps so many people in unhappiness because mm-hmm. um, even if you've been successful and sometimes especially if you've been successful in one realm it's so easy to just sit back and 
go into the next step, maybe become a coach, become a judge. And, and so many of our fellow athletes like do take that, that, um, that journey. So what sort of advice would you give to people who might be feeling stuck and afraid to go out of that safety zone? First of all, if that's your passion, then, then that's where you should be. You know, if you, if your mind's in your sport and you want to coach and you want to be involved, then that's incredible. But if you're afraid, if you're afraid you won't be good at something else, this is all you've ever known, then that's something different. And you know, as athletes, we've pushed our minds and our bodies to the limit. And and I think we know what failure looks like and we know that things take time. It took, you know, it took decades to, to get to be at the top of our sport. And, and I think you got to follow your passion. What makes you feel alive? Because I think the saddest thing is if you are too afraid that you won't be good at something else to go try something that makes you feel alive. And I think I knew that early on. It took me a while to make the transition and decide to go to school, probably a couple years later than I ideally wanted to. Um, And then I think I also struggled with trying something new and not feeling good at it and then really judging myself. And I think I've moved past that to this place of joy um, just in learning and seeing how immense this world is and how much joy I derive from that. And, And I can let go of my ego because... I don't need to be good at everything. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I will be, maybe I won't, but I need to find what I love to do and, and follow that path. And I think when you can let go of your ego, that is the biggest gift. Mm-hmm. Are there any fears that you feel are still present and perhaps driving what you're doing? I think there's always fears that come up and you kind of have a discussion with them. are you reasonable where is this coming from a lot of other people are feeling you know this way as well and for me it's this this need to you know I always have this feel like this need to make a mark in the world but also to absorb the entire world and there's so many paths and I'm inspired creatively in ways and I'm inspired you know by backpackers who just travel and have been to every country in the world and have had every cultural experience but then at the same time the people that kind of have locked themselves up and written like this magnus opus and like they've Mm. given in that way and I think I'm insecure about what's the next path that I choose and will it will I fulfill like this destiny will I you know will I become my utmost on this path um but you know I think that's part of life we're human if we didn't have insecurities and fears like we wouldn't we wouldn't really be alive Mm. And looking back, we've talked a lot about the meaning that you ascribe to your experiences. Can you share an experience in the past that you think has really shaped who you are today? Yeah, there's there's quite a few. I'd say one of the, the biggest ones um, in shaping who I am today is deciding to leave, to leave skating in a sense and leave Orange County and move to New York and go to school after having been homeschooled since I was 12 and then toured and not been to school at all. And basically, I never took my SATs. I never really learned to write a proper essay. And, you know, I was working on my admissions essays for Columbia. And I just, you know, grammar, punctuation, everything just a complete mess, you know, (laughs) no idea how to make an outline. And it was so scary to move to New York. I'd never lived by myself. And 
it made me feel so alive. I was terrified to do it. And then everything just unfolded, like the, the new people that I met, the perspectives that I've gained. And it was the beginning of cultivating Sasha that wasn't an ice skater. Because mm-hmm. as long as I stayed in the world of skating, you know, stayed near my rink where I trained, that was my identity. I kind of went to the rink and I practiced. I would do an occasional show. And and that was my identity. By moving to New York, I I had to start over and I had to learn who I was what I was interested in, and I now had experiences like in the real world, and mm-hmm. and that was the greatest gift that I could have given myself. And that experience of understanding who I am, which is a struggle that so many people, like such a basic question, just can't answer that. And as an athlete, you know, especially as a successful competitive athlete, where you have to put on a certain face when you're performing and the world sees you as a perfect skater. What was that transition like for you, learning how to understand who I am and tap into that vulnerable side? It was it was not explored when I competed. Um, it was very much suppressed. Um, I think I exposed my vulnerabilities to my mother alone. Um, the fears that I had going into a huge competition the frustrations I had with the day at practice, I'm never going to get this, or how am I going to do it, and, you know, I'm scared. And that was only that was only for her. But for the world, it was, I've trained my life for this. I'm prepared. I'm focused. Um, I know what it takes. And and that's what you, you present. And this is, you know, as a 15-year-old, this is, mm-hmm. this is what you're presenting. You're taught to be poised. You're taught to suppress any emotions that could undermine you mm-hmm. you know if you feel pain if you feel fear you you tell yourself you don't you tell yourself you're fine and and you kind of need that to go into a stadium with 20,000 people yelling your name and television cameras everywhere if you start to tell yourself you're scared and maybe you can't do it then you just you know it would you would quickly unravel mm-hmm. so how did you eventually tap into the side of you that could admit that you were scared I think I took I, I took acting classes uh, once I was done competing. I went to Harvard to the Moscow Art School and, and took more classes in LA and and I learned that humans um, exist on a spectrum and athletes are on one side and actors are on the complete other side and normal people live in the middle. And basically, as an athlete, you have to shut down any emotion. You have to be like a robot. You know, you have to be steady, you have to be sure, you have to be disciplined, you have to still your mind. Um, and as an actor, you have to be affected by everything, like the sadness, like the, the connections, uh, the vulnerability, getting your heart broken by someone. You And that's something you just don't let in as an athlete, you know. And so it was just the most wonderful experience for me to like get in touch with all these emotions and somewhat feel okay to show them to people and then a whole nother level when I could connect during scene study and look someone in the eye and have a very intense gaze and just start to blush because I had never shared such an you know intimate contact before I would always look away and and they teach you like no stay with it it's not comfortable stay with it what does Mm -hmm. it how does that make you feel and and that was such an incredible experience I think um everybody should have to take acting classes just to, (laughs) to get in touch with their emotions And this idea of being uncomfortable and vulnerable 
is so important because I've just realized how powerful that is to connect with other people because when you share your own vulnerability, you give space for someone else to share you know, how they really feel. Yeah, Brene Brown is just, yeah. that TED Talk is incredible. Absolutely, and I think that's more and more of what I'm drawn to in the world in this society where we live in these sound bites and airbrushed Instagram and, you know, everything's filtered. It's, it's just not real. It's people's kind of highlights of their life, and it's alienating. Um, and I think if people can just not be afraid to say, like, I made a mistake and I'm scared and this was painful – that is the most incredible thing because then someone else is like, yeah, me too. Like, I'm not perfect either. It's not what it looks like on the outside. And then there's this real basis for intimacy and for bonding. Um, and it's and it's really beautiful, you know. And I, I've gotten to a place where I don't think I have a stereotype about it anymore. I think it took me a decade because it was so imprinted in me that, like, don't let anyone know you have any weaknesses. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> just, like, don't, if you feel, you know, just don't say anything at all. If it, you can't, if you can't show that you're strong, yeah. then just shut it down. And and it's been wonderful to, to unlearn that and and feel like it's okay to cry, to tell someone you're sad, that things are hard. And it's it's a great place to, to be able to share. I heard the saying that you shouldn't compare someone else's highlight reel with your behind the scenes. <laughs> yes, that's that couldn't be truer. Um, yeah, and that's something that I've done. You know, I was saying that I've um, I have no notifications anymore for any of the social media apps, and I've started to unfollow a lot of people. Um, in fact, there are very few people I follow. I mainly follow places. Mm. I follow like wild animals and and cats, and I follow. Stoic quotes and Buddha, um, like Buddhism quotes, and um, that's about it. That's left. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious how you have translated all of these things from your very high standards for yourself to this new discovery of the power of vulnerability. How does it affect your personal life and relationships? So, I think that's. It's, it's where it starts, right? With yourself is kind of like the first tea leaf, um, you know, the first layer that you peel. Um, because I think it's only once you can have a really honest relationship with yourself that you can begin to have very honest, nuanced relationships with other people. Um, and so I think what I've tried to do is to be more kind and to be more patient and to have more empathy of what someone else is going through. Because ultimately, everyone's suffering, everyone's seeking happiness, and I think we judge. We judge people's decisions, we judge their formulas, and, you know, everyone's just trying their best to get to the same place. And so, you know, instead of being like, they should do it my way, or let me tell them what I think, it's, I think I'm learning to be a much better listener mm-hmm. because of this. And and I and I'm also... Not, I have not gotten this by any means, but I'm learning to accept people's flaws and struggles. I think I've lived in a world where I tried to hide my struggles for so long and all the other athletes I was around did as well, mm-hmm. that this is kind of like the beginning of this revolution where people are breaking down those boundaries. And so sometimes it makes me uncomfortable when there's someone that I see as this source of strength and um, 
and and they're like I'm really scared too and I'm like oh my gosh like what am I gonna hold on to um, but no I think it's it's a journey um, I've I have a lot to learn um, as well but it's it's happening do you think hypothetically could you ever go off into a, like a deserted island and you know there's always this this hypothetical thing of well maybe if I'm just get away from it all and I can really explore internal happiness um, and just do it for me. Do you think you could ever do that? To live alone on a desert island? Not no, like, <laughs> but you know, there's because we derive so much significance from validation, external validation, like being relevant, being in the press, getting these accolades. And in some ways, you know, you read these stories of people who they maybe they've made it big and then they decide to leave everything behind and and they say, well happiness is being here living um a life with my family and i'm staying outside of this Mm -hmm. you know the realm of press and everything else like that i think every day that goes by i'm getting closer to that i Mm -hmm. think i've realized that external validation is fleeting and it changes on a whim so Mm -hmm. you could work for 10 years and get external validation and then next day someone does it better or you make a mistake and then now you have, you know, it's like with, with competitions, you win nationals and you're the hero and then the next competition you mess up and all of a sudden like, oh, she has problems, she's not going to make, you know, it goes away <laughs> and it's taken from you in a second, Yeah, you know, and so I think as much as I'm used to that programming, like work really hard, someone says good job, work really hard, you know, it's almost like, <laughs> yeah. like you're a dog, you know, yeah. you want your treat, and you want someone to yeah. say like good job. And I think that's that fear of not being liked is part of that as well. And I think I've just been able to find so much satisfaction from learning and from relationships, and starting to find my truth, you know, you know, maybe I don't know, like, what I want to do, but I know like who I want to be. And I think once you start to figure that out, it just becomes a lot easier because you're no longer chasing a status. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're building a way of life and it rewards you daily because you're satisfied. Mm. What's, what's something you're reading right now? Um, so I just finished Radical Acceptance, mm-hmm. um, which was incredible. Um, but right now I'm reading Discipline Equals Freedom, which is by Jocko Willink. And he is like a Navy SEAL um, special forces commander. Um, and I just, I, you know, sometimes I get a little <laughs> soft being out of the world of, of sports. And so I just love his uncompromising, like, I hate when people ask me, how am I going to do it? What am I doing? It's like, you do it here, you do it now. It's like, how do I get up early? I get up early. How do I work out? I work out, you yeah. know? And I just, I'm like, I just kind of love the no nonsense of it. Um, but I have, I have quite a reading list. Next up is The War of Art. And that's about really making time for your writing process and, you know, getting getting rid of the, um, you know, the, the stumbling blocks on your path. What are you writing right now? So I journal every day, but right now I'm working on an op-ed for the, the Times um, about, about what it's like for the Olympic athletes right now, you mm-hmm. know, and what their lives have been like until this point. Because we, we read about, we see... Um, you know, players in the NFL, NBA, like multiple times a year, the Super Bowls every year, you know, they make a lot of money, they have the best facilities, the best coaches, the best access. But no one's ever heard of most of the athletes are about to compete in the Olympics next month. Mm -hmm. And, and I think it's really important for people to understand their story and that the Olympics comes 
once every four years and you hope and pray that your window is right and that you your body's in the right place your mind's in the right place you know and it's it's a different game like the olympics and olympians are different athletes than than the professional athletes so i think it that's an interesting expose for the public to to understand Mm -hmm. thinking back are there any decisions that you regret so I'm a person that loves to regret everything. Um, and I think someone said what, what regret are decisions relived. Um, but I think lately I'm understanding that every decision is a learning experience. So even if it didn't lead me where I wanted to go, I learned something from it. And I think when you get far enough away from the regret, it becomes this this tool and you're like ah because of that I understood that this wasn't right for me and that I made these decisions to to get into this relationship or take this job because I was feeling this and I thought that was us and it's like you only know because you try mm-hmm. you know we are not clairvoyant beings and so the only way we know is to make mistakes and mistakes cause regret and as many people say it's like the people that make the most mistakes learn the fastest so you know figure it out in that way. And I think for me, I need to get comfortable making more mistakes. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a perfectionist and so I hesitate. You know, it's like I want to start a podcast, but I don't want it to start it until it's perfect. And and so I need to get more comfortable with failure, more comfortable with humiliation, and to not care. So it's like shedding that that perfectionist athlete ego. And um, I think I need more regrets. You know, I need more of that. And and to not take them so seriously. Yeah, and I think this goes back to the idea of being anti-fragile, where this so many of us walk around with this idea of, of essentially being fragile, which is when there's something that happens to you, something negative, what's a failure, a rejection, you get into a weaker state, mm-hmm. uh, like less than your original form. And this idea of being anti-fragile is anytime there's some sort of negative pressure or chaos that's applied to your life. You get stronger. You get stronger and you, every single opportunity is one that you can learn from and grow from. And that is something I think I recognize conceptually and it's it's putting it into yeah. practice. Um, but, but absolutely, I think that's the one, I think, big mind shift that I've had in the past few months that like, these regrets are good, you know? Because I'm like, well, how did I make that mistake? Why did I do this? How could I not have known? And I realized, I'm like, no, like, I needed I needed to try because that's living life. You don't know, mm-hmm. you, but you you jump in with both feet and, and you learn. You learn along the way. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, we've both been so used to – we've had more than enough our fair share of falling. Yes, a lot of falling. painful falls. So I think in some ways, like, even that – ability to overcome that from a young age is a strength that we've developed that I think once harnessed can can be applicable to these new life experiences. Yes, it's learning the new set of rules, right? Yeah. Different rules for sports than there are for life, you know. The goals aren't aren't so clear and you kind of have yeah. to to make your own your own rules, but absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. This was such an incredible interview, and it was great to hear so many of your insights. The way I end every show is with something called The One Thing, because I believe that all it takes is just one voice and one person to completely transform someone else's life, and um, we're just going to do that with you and ask you a few of your one things. Sure. So to start, what is one book you would unhesitatingly recommend to anyone and why? 
On the Shortness of Life by Seneca. And it's, um, it's a very short book um, because it wakes you up. It makes you realize your, your, your judgments and the mistakes you're making um, in what you place value on in your life. You know, we place money on value and status, but what we really should be placing it on is time. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's, life is so short. Yeah. And it's so short even if we're lucky enough to get to 80 or 90. And, and for, for a lot of people, it's, it, they don't get that far. Um, so that really made me wake up to changing how I live every day, not deferring, oh, I'll do this when I'm 60 and I have time. It's like, no, I need to, make, I need to live the life that I want to live now. Mm-hmm. What is one question you wish people would ask more often? Oh, that's a good one. Um, what makes you feel alive? Mm-hmm. What makes you feel alive right now? It's an attitude. It's cultivating an attitude of wonder. You know, Mm. like stepping out into this city, you can go out and feel a thousand different ways. And, you know, you're most likely to feel stressed. But it's cultivating this attitude of wonder. And then I feel like anything is possible. And when I feel like anything is possible, it's when I feel like the most alive and excited and happy. Mm. Who is one person who inspires you that is alive today? There are many, but I'd say top of mind is Tim Ferriss. Um, I've been listening to many of his podcasts, and it's just because he has charted such an unconventional life for himself, and he asks questions that are so insightful. He redefines how we value a life and what a career should be, and I Mm -hmm. think it feels so relevant, um, and he just spans the kinds of people that he interviews from artists, photographers, philanthropists, incredibly successful people in business. And it's just, it's wonderful. He kind of digs deep into, you know, these kind of like the root of these people and who they are. And it's just, it's wonderful to, to be exposed to that. What is one thing in the world you would change? I would change patience. I wish, I wish people could all cultivate a little more patience. Because I think with patience, there'd be more kindness. I think everyone is everyone's just like so amped and self-important and there's no patience for, for people. What is one dish that you would eat right now? Hmm. <laughs> a little more lighthearted. <laughs> I could eat like a really good, maybe like a ginger Thai stir fry. Great. What is one piece of advice you'd want to leave our audience with? Empower yourself and... There are a number of ways that you can do that. It's it's very individual. But make choices, read things that empower you to, to make better choices, to believe in yourself. And just from there, it's, it's exponential. You know, it really gets momentum. And so empower yourself. Again, there's, you know, we talked about this earlier. There's always a thousand reasons you can't. Mm-hmm. Empower yourself. Surround yourself with people that make you feel good, make you feel inspired, read things that make you feel inspired and just empower yourself. Right. And one last thing is I want to make this as actionable as possible. After listening to all of your insights, what is one tiny challenge, an actionable thing that an audience could do um, after this podcast finishes? If there's been something that you've been wanting to implement in your life and you haven't done it, Make it concrete, make it real, and make it small so that you can start. And so for me, I was was not good at meditating or not good at making time for journaling because it's like, oh, like I'll do it later in the day or, you know, like things would come up, or like, you know, and, and inevitably it wouldn't happen. And so now it's like 
as soon as my alarm goes off, I meditate and then I journal. And it happens. And what that does is it gives you this sense of capability that you can tell yourself you're going to do something and do it. And then I think that just leads to bigger and bigger accomplishments because instead of being like, oh, I'm going to say I'm going to do it, but I've said it before and it's never happened. So why do I believe that I'm going to do it? So mm-hmm. pick something very small that's actionable, put it in your, make a schedule, put it in your schedule and and do it and just make yourself do it. And it feels amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much. I had such an amazing time talking Thank to you. Thank you. And you're next. I'm going to get you on, on my podcast. You'll have to be my, my first guest. And thank you for everything. This was a great discussion. There you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. I created the Enoughness podcast to reveal the real stories behind the leaders we admire, to address this universal question that we all have at some point or another. Am I good enough? So just remember that you're not on this journey alone and that you do have the power of enoughness. If you want the full show notes and transcript from today's episode, go to www.lisawang.co slash podcast. Again, that's lisawang.co slash podcast. And you'll be able to follow along. I'd love if you could leave a review or tag anything that you share on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag enoughness. And you can find me at Lisa Works, L-I-S-A-W-O-R-X on Twitter or Instagram. Catch you in the next episode.